Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 236. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here. This week, we have an exciting guest, Pete Barrow. Now, Pete's real estate investing journey started out in the Washington, D.C. area, where he watched all of this path of progress being built up around him and didn't capitalize on that upswing. So he and his family moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, where they started Parrot Property Group. Now, Parrot first started out as more of a property management group, and then over time has grown into doing different things there, from buying and holding small multifamily properties, to fixing and flipping, wholesaling, and so much more. So I'm excited to jump into all that, talk about what Pete is doing there and how he has grown that business. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. All right, today I welcome on the show, Mr. Pete Barrow. Pete, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jacob. It's a pleasure. Hey, it's our pleasure. I'm really excited to have you on. You and I were just doing a little pre-interview chatter here. You're doing some really exciting stuff, but before we dig into that, we just back up a little bit. Tell us about yourself, who you are, where you came from, how you got started in the world of real estate investing, and just share your journey with us a little bit. Sure. We lived in the D.C. area for, well, I lived there for about 100 years. The boys were, <laughs> two sons, seemed like 100 years. My two sons, Sam and Isaac, were both raised there. I was a carpenter, cabinet maker, handyman most of that time. And I always wondered, why am I not buying my own houses and fixing them up? Well, the reason is costs of fortune. Anytime there's a cheap area that starts to come up, it happens with incredible speed in that area. I stood and watched, I sat and watched while a number of places that had been really dumps suddenly got hot and started filling up with nice little restaurants and stuff. But by the time I could even be aware of it, it was already, you know, those places were just getting bought up. There's so much money there and so many smart people. But my older son, Sam, he always wanted to get out anyway. And he started, he saved his pennies. He started just driving around the country, looking at other cities just to see what he liked. Not something everyone does, but he drove all over the place. And I was a little surprised when he settled on Indy, but uh, I came out here and I, I could kind of see what he liked. And I started to really like it myself. And he bought a house here. I started coming out and helping him fix it up. And uh, he didn't know anyone, but he didn't care. He would just sit on the couch. He was building up a web posting and web design company at the time. He'd just sit on the couch with his parrot on his shoulder and tap away at the laptop. I'd come out and spend a month at a time working. Then we bought another house, and then we bought another house. All these things were either foreclosures or landlords who just wanted to get out. We got good deals. We were kind of stalled because we didn't really have a fortune to spend. We were just having to kind of scrape the money up. And then uh, 
a customer I've been working for for 30 some years. I told her what we were doing and just out of the blue, she asked if we could use money, which uh, I had a hard time not just laughing when she said that, but uh, <laughs> drove around. I was very serious. I was like, well, I, let me think about that. And I drove around the corner and called Sam and we both had a big laugh, but uh, they wound up, Sam found them a big package of these beautiful old 20s duplexes and uh, they wound up investing like 900,000 bucks. I don't know if you want to know specifics like yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. So that really got us our start. And at that point, Sam was... Was, did a very good job of finding this stuff. My younger son, Isaac, was managing a pizza parlor in uh, Maryland, and he came out here and started managing those places. And we made a deal with the investors where we managed, did the repairs, and uh, shared the profits. And what happened over the next couple of years, the uh, investors realized that real estate is not nearly as passive as everyone had been telling them. And they were spending more time on the phone than they wanted to. And yeah. so we made on financing and buy them out. So we got a nice big portfolio of like 13 duplex. So that really made a, a good start for us. Plus, what was really nice about all that is Sam found another little package of houses from the same buyer, which he managed to just resell to another investor. I don't think we'd ever heard of wholesaling, but that's when we realized, wait, this is what they're talking about. Wholesale, this is a thing. So we started looking at doing more of that. Anyway, that was the beginning of Parrot. You see why we couldn't quite figure out what to call it. It was property management, but mostly what we do is not property management. It's wholesaling and uh, buy and hold. And like I said, accidental flips, flips that start out being buy and holds and then you sell them. Yeah, sure. Well, what I like about your story, Pete, and the same goes for your son, Sam, and then Isaac to follow is you guys really set out to like create a path that you wanted, right? So you said you would sit on the sidelines and watched all this path of progress take place in Washington, D.C., missed out on those opportunities, and then realized hey, the numbers didn't exactly work in that market. So you set out to find a place where you could go out and buy those cash flowing rental properties. Just so happens, Sam, you know, got in his van and drove across the country and found a place that he liked, settled on Indianapolis. So could you talk a little bit about what it was about Indianapolis that drew you guys there? Was it the demographics, the economics, the region, the geography? What was it exactly? Well, if it had been up to me, it would have been just about the feel of the place, which is very comfortable, nice, big, wide open street not too much traffic. But uh, for Sam, it was, he really did run all the numbers and he looked into the law, landlord-tenant law and stuff. Yeah, that's really important. Which is pretty landlord-friendly, but it was just affordable. I mean, this was six years ago and prices had kind of bottomed out everywhere, I guess. But there are a lot of markets where even at the bottom, we couldn't have afforded to play in that game. But here you could uh, you could buy a viable rental house easily for 40 or 50,000 bucks. That's kind of in the neighborhood of what we spent for these nice big duplexes. But there's a lot of stuff even lower than that. We're kind of specializing in finding distressed houses that are in sort of carefully chosen spots. You could pick those things up for pennies back then. So for you, it came down to both a qualitative feature, and that was just a feel and the vibe of the city, and then Sam crunching the numbers, that quantitative feature where those price points were really appealing. You had good rent-to-value ratios, it sounds there. So yeah, those two things combined make for a really good recipe for an investment market. And you know, when you boil it down to those two simple metrics, it really takes all that convoluted decision-making out of the process, huh? So you guys settle there, and then you start doing some different deals. You kind of talked about that initial package of dupe where you had that first investor. And then that was kind of your proof of concept moment, it sounds. So after that, what did your next step look like? Well, we just kind of went on trying to do more of the same. And it's just, uh, we've never made a deal quite that big where we got a big chunk of houses like that. I think mainly because the market just has come up so much so fast. 
That was a year where we got 26, 28 units at once. A lot of years since then, we've only accumulated a couple of units for ourselves. Because we're wholesaling, you know, we're looking at hundreds of houses every year. That sort of feeds into it. And even in this market, which is a seller's market, if there ever was one, even in this market, we're finding a little house here and there that would be a good deal in any market. Let's kind of talk about that wholesaling aspect of your business, Pete, and tell us about what you're doing there. You kind of said you didn't really even know what wholesaling was until you actually did a wholesaling deal. And you said, okay, well, we made our little commission on this property. Sounds like a pretty cool deal. Let's do this again and again, right? Right. So tell us about that and what you're doing there. I know you're doing quite a bit of volume of direct leads. And so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we do direct mail. We have a website, which I think is pretty nice. And of course, I think what it's all about is getting your website to where it's up as high in the rankings as you can get it. So when people search for selling houses in Indy, they come up with the parrot pretty quickly. We've got a billboard, we've got t-shirts, we've got bumper stickers, uh, we've got all kinds of stuff. It just takes a while for your brand to catch on. But I'll tell you, having this uh, stupid looking parrot has been an amazing thing. I think Sam paid $4 for the right to use this parrot. And if we had to go out and pay $100,000 to get it now, it would be worth it because people remember it. If I go to a meetup, and get up to speak, I see people nudging each other and saying, like, that's that guy with that parrot. (laughs) I know it doesn't make any sense, and parrots have nothing to do with real estate, but it sort of sticks in people's minds. It's uh, sort of a cheerful, happy, colorful-looking thing, and people remember it. Yeah, sure. Well, it kind of just comes down to that marketing, right? Like, you're trying to get your message out there, keep in the forefront of people's minds, ranking well, constantly being in people's minds when they want to buy a house or sell a house or looking for a property management or any of the number of services you're company offers. So yeah, that's what it's all about, really. Yeah. And you know, the longer you do it, the easier it gets. You know, you've got, you begin to have a network of a lot of people who've bought and sold with you. And that sort of spreads through the population. Sure. Well, tell us a little bit more about the details of your wholesaling business, Pete. I know you're doing a lot of direct mail. Tell us about what you're targeting, how you're targeting people, frequency, just kind of jump into the whole nuts and bolts of that thing, if you will. Well, it changes. Over time, we built up a pretty good list of buyers and we know what they want. And that's what we target. And a lot of what they want is not necessarily what we want to own. It's uh, stuff in low C neighborhoods, but they know how to make that stuff work. We're talking about houses that we might buy for eight or $10,000 and sell for twelve to $15,000. There's a market for that stuff. And there are guys who know how to come in and fix those things up and make them work and make them pay off. So that's one thing we aim at. But then occasionally we'll just do something really specific. I mean, at times we'll just send our cards to everyone in a certain zip code. Other times, you know, Sam is really good with the technical stuff. So he knows how to sit and mine the data. And everyone who uh, owns a house in Indy but lives out of state and is 65 or older and has been cited for not mowing their grass, every person like that will get a parrot card. Yeah, yeah. I find, uh, you know, all these parameters and different criteria you can find when you're doing direct mail campaigns to be really interesting. And you might ask yourself like, okay, why target somebody that's 65 and older? Or why target somebody who has 80 plus percent equity in their property? Or why target somebody out of state? And you really have to ask yourself and like kind of figure out why you're targeting, what you're targeting, how you're going to get to those sellers. So tell us about some of those criteria and why you target certain 
features. I'll do my best. You're really talking to the wrong guy here. I'm I'm the <laughs> dumbest, I'm the slowest of the three of us, and and that's why I'm the guy just swinging a hammer most. Well, of hey, the if time. you can explain it, then that means everybody else can get it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Explain like I'm five years old. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things we're looking for people who own houses and are sick of owning houses. That's landlords who've been doing it for a long time and maybe are out of state. And that's a more difficult thing to do than most people realize being an out-of-state landlord. So people like that, there are older people who just want to get out of Indy and go back to Alabama or go into a nursing home, live with their cousin who lives on the other side of town. You just look for signs of that. And one of them is, you know, yeah, being older, living out of state and having, if someone's getting cited for not mowing his grass and not doing repairs, that's a sign that a guy is really sick of managing his property or just not able to. Yeah, sure. So as a real estate investor, essentially our job is to find properties below market value. Value, right? That's where you make your money. That's how you arbitrage the value in these deals. And you might find something, a property that you can go in and increase the value in by fixing it up, right? And, you know, in a path of progress neighborhood or in an up and coming neighborhood, or, you know, you might go out and buy a property below market value from a motivated seller and you ask yourself, okay, who's motivated to sell? Maybe an out-of-state owner, an aging owner, an owner with a high percentage of equity in their property that they could possibly sell to you for less than market value things like that. So when you start putting those pieces together, you can kind of craft your direct mail campaign. And you guys have had a lot of success doing that. So now you go out and you buy this property. What is Parrot's kind of MO here? What do they do with it? Do they go in, fix it up, sell it to other investors? Are you buying holding it? What are you doing exactly? Well, there are a lot of different things we're doing. One is, like I said, if it's there's certain neighborhoods where we don't really want to work, but we know people who do, that's their model. If we come across a house in one of their neighborhoods, this is where my son Isaac comes in. He does a lot of the management, but he's also gotten very good at both negotiating with buyers and sellers and just knowing what people want. People wouldn't believe how much skill there is in, in wholesaling. I don't have it, but he does. And you have to just be able to walk into a house and in about five minutes know who's going to want this house and what they'll pay for it. That tells you what you can pay for it. And then you go from there. I don't think I could do that if I had a hundred more years to work on it, but he just, this is a good fit for him. So yeah, he knows our buyer's list very well and he knows what people want and where they want it. The other prong of what we do is we're looking for stuff for ourselves. And sometimes that stuff does come out of our mailing campaigns. We've bought stuff that was just about ready to go because the seller just wanted out, but we've bought a lot of stuff, a couple of our most successful, nicest houses. We bought a hoarder house last year. It was a nice old guy. He just couldn't manage it anymore and didn't have anyone to help him. And he was delighted to get out for, I forget, $11,000. And it was in a decent neighborhood. And that was a fair price because it took us, you wouldn't believe how long it took just to shovel stuff out and uh, get it cleaned up. And, you know, it needed a total bathroom redo. and a, It needed a lot of work. But you could tell that this was a nice, solid little house on a nice little street in a nice, solid, an area that's already solid and still coming up. And uh, it was well worth it. That's kind of our MO is finding places that are distressed and undervalued and that then I can go in and put some sweat equity into it and turn it into a really nice rental with a big focus on you know, just redoing all the mechanicals, getting it to where it's low maintenance, getting it to where it's really attractive for a tenant without spending a fortune. And uh, that's kind of what we do. And like I was saying earlier, what's happened with a lot of these places is we start out with the intention of doing that, but by the time we get done, which 
sometimes it takes us a long time to get to these places and get through them. Sometimes by the time you get done, you realize, wait, this house has come up in value so much, we can't justify keeping it and renting it. You know, we're, gonna, we're not going to be anywhere near even the, what they call the 1% rule. Right, right. I don't think 1% is very good. But. Yeah, and for the listeners that might not be too familiar with that rule of thumb, kind of explain that really quick, if you will. Well, that's just a really rough calculation. It's not really, a, call it a guideline and not a rule. It's, it's something you can do very quickly in your head when you look at a house. Is the monthly rental at least 1% of the purchase price. So a $100,000 house, are you making at least, not making, but getting $1,000 in rent out of it? In a yeah, month? okay. Now that's just a really rough guideline because there are a lot of other things that can come into play. Most of our rentals, when we, when we like these duplexes, we were hitting probably 3%. That's pretty good. No matter what else comes into play, that's pretty good. Sure. So your kind of criteria is once you get this property in the door, you fix it up, you look at it and you say, okay, we got a couple options here. We can turn around and sell this property. Let's say we can sell it for $100,000 or we could rent it out. Well, if the rent is $2,000 a month, that's a pretty good rent to value ratio. So you would consider holding on to that property and renting it. But if it can only rent for say $500 a month, that's half a percent rent to value ratio. You'd say, well, no need and keeping that as a rental, it doesn't fare well for the cash flow. So let's go ahead and sell that property and realize that $100,000 sell price and whatever equity comes with that and go out and find another property and do that again. Yeah, exactly. And it sort of plays into the idea that you're looking for places that are we're not looking for places that are in areas that we think are going to remain distressed forever. We don't want to spend the money to buy in hot areas. I don't think that's a great idea because if they're hot, that means they're already overpriced. But something between two hot areas or on a road leading to a hot area or between a hot area and an old established area, if you shop ferociously, you can still find stuff like that. But then, like I said, what happens with places like that, especially in the last few years, is time to get the place fixed up. Maybe it has become hot or at least hotter. And then we're just in the process of selling a place right now that we paid like 50 grand for it. We've got about 120 in it altogether. It would rip for about 1200 but someone's buying it for 220 So yeah, right. So you're almost just at a half a percent rent-to-value yeah. ratio there, right? So Yeah, and, and what people might not understand, it, it doesn't make sense to compare the rent to how much money you have in it. That's not really the value of the house. The value of the house is what some guy's going to pay for it. So right. the, fact, the fact that we've spent 120 on it and we could get $1,200, that's 1%. That sounds acceptable, but it's not. You've really got $220,000 in that house because that's what someone will pay. You don't take it. You're leaving the money sitting there and only making 1200 bucks a rental. So. It's a rent-to-value ratio, not a rent-to-what-you-have-in-the-property ratio, right? So Yeah, yeah not a rent-to-price or rent-to-investment or whatever. Right, right. Awesome. Well, uh, what other things are you guys doing in your business, Pete? I know, so you're going out, you're finding motivated sellers through direct mail campaigns, turning around often, fixing those properties up and selling them, keeping a few in your portfolio. Any other unique things you're doing? I don't know. That seems like a lot to me already. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. You've got a very integrated, what I'd call a vertically integrated company, right? So you're doing different things. You're going out, finding properties, putting some in your own portfolio, wholesaling some deals that don't match certain criteria, fixing some deals up and selling them to investors, managing those. So yeah, you've got quite an operation going on there just with that. <laughs> well, you know, some, when we first started this, uh, we were sharing some office space with the broker downtown, FS Houses. And there was a guy there who gave Sam a, a lot of good advice. And one thing he said that 
stuck with me was just, you have to listen to what the market tells you to do. You cannot just start with a business plan and then just go do that for the rest of your life. Our business plan was just to buy and hold stuff forever. I thought that maybe in 30 years after I've been bagged up for a long time, some of the stuff will have tripled in value and then the kids will have something nice. Well, it's already tripled in value. So it doesn't make sense to keep it now, does it? You just have to constantly be thinking about and changing your plan. About the only thing I can think of to say that I haven't mentioned is that I think part of my role in this is just to be really hands-on. I'm always out driving around. I'm working on these houses. We have a really good little crew uh, and I sort of uh, oversee them and work with them a lot of the time. And that is a huge part of what has made this work. You were saying earlier, you make money when you buy, not when you sell. I don't see how you can make money if you pay retail and then hire contractors and managers. I don't see how that works. Especially the buying retail part. I completely yeah. agree with you there. Yeah, definitely. I guess if you're really thinking long-term, you could do all that and over 30 years, your house will be paid off and then your kids will have it. That's better than what most people can leave to their kids. So that could be nice. But for us, what's made it work is look at hundreds of houses for everyone we buy. So we buy cheap. Then we manage in-house. We have a crew that does the work and I work with the crew. So my time goes into all this too. And I supervise the crew. And that's where we got really lucky, I think. When we first started this, I just went into Lowe's one day trying to, and asked around, you know, does anybody know a plumber? And after about three or four steps, I, I found a, a great guy who, who does our plumbing. And I asked him, do you, do you know a handyman? And he said, yeah, I know a guy. He's great. And he did turn out to be great. And what's even better is the guy knows everybody in Indianapolis. He knows yeah. anything you need to do. The guy knows somebody. So he's uh, through him, we've met tree guy and our just everyone, our painter, our carpet guy, our roofer, and they're all good and they're all reasonable. So finding a guy like that, I don't know how to advise you, the listener, on how to find someone like that, except like a lot of things, just go out and drive around and meet people. You know, there's a lot of the stuff in this business that you just can't do it from behind a computer. Yeah, sure. You have to get out and actually do things to learn them, and you don't know what you don't know until you start taking that action, right? One thing that you're talking about that I want to bring up is this power of building a really strategic team around yourself. So earlier, you're talking about the strengths and weaknesses of the team with you, Isaac, and Sam. Sam is the kind of the data analytics guy. Isaac brings a strong negotiation and kind of project management skill set to the table. You are out there in the day-to-day -day managing the operations, managing contractors. You've built a good contracting team amongst your handymen, your carpenters, your plumbers, all that. So you guys have a well-oiled machine and everybody's bringing their respective strengths to the table and really coming together to make a well-oiled kind of team here. Yeah, that has really, we're very lucky to have that. Having a family business is really a special thing. I don't know if the kids would say the same thing, but for me, it's we see <laughs> each other every day. We talk to each other every day. We work together. They do their jobs very well and everyone's complimentary. And everyone we've brought on, the building crew, there's a woman who works in the office. Everyone that we've brought on has been really, really good and really contributed. So it's just better than I could have dreamed that something like this would ever be. Yeah, well, that's great. And kind of talking about that dream. What is it that you guys are wanting to accomplish in the future? Are you happy with buying a few houses a month throughout the rest of time and, you know, just kind of slowly growing that portfolio? Are you trying to scale into other things, do any kind of different things? What's the future look like for you guys there at Parrot? Well, I'd be happy to just buy a couple of houses a year and fix them up nicely. But we're thinking that things are high now. 
we cannot find much more than a few houses a year that hit our numbers. But, you know, stuff's got to come down, at least a little. It's inevitable. So we're actually selling off some of our stuff, which we think is just way overpriced and continuing to look for we're continuing to look for stuff that hasn't come up yet, little areas that haven't come up yet. And we're just banking money. And we're also trying to develop relationships with uh, lenders. A lot of people who I worked for for years who have a little money and might be interested in lending to us. And if prices drop a little bit on the high end stuff, they'll probably drop a lot on the stuff we buy. Sure. So we will go around and spend our money and try to borrow a million bucks, but 30,000 bucks at a time. And buy when stuff is a little lower. Then maybe we can buy a couple of houses a month. Right now, we can't find two houses a month that we want to buy. So Yeah, sure. Well, it's better to be picky, right? You know, really have that strict criteria and pass on the things that don't match that criteria rather than starting to chase things you shouldn't be, buying properties that fall outside of your investment criteria just for the sake of buying properties, right? So many people get caught up in this metric of, hey, I have to buy so many doors a year. And they don't ask themselves, are those doors meeting? that criteria and those metrics that they should be for them. So you're kind of standing pat, holding tight to your guns and saying, hey, we're only going to buy within our certain little wheelhouse here. Comes across our table, great. If not, we'll be patient and we'll wait it out and we'll buy them when they come available. Yeah. I don't want to be negative about anything here, but there are a lot of people who lose money in this business by doing just what you just said. Just You hear someone say, I've got to buy a house or I've got to buy 10 houses this year. That just should set off alarms in your head because some years you should buy 10 houses. Other years you really should not. And a lot of people do very well in this business, but the business is extremely popular right now. So a lot of people are making a start at it and they're just, they're really enthusiastic and that's great. And it can be a wonderful business, but don't get so enthusiastic that you just go out and do something silly just because you like owning houses. I mean, it's sure, just, sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I like owning houses too. I love working on houses, but we pass on a lot of stuff that I'd like to have. We'll see some house and I'll be like, wow, this is is charming. The street is great. I'd love to have this house. But then you got to look at it and think this house has no future. I can't just buy it because I like the tile on the fireplace. I can't just buy it because it's only $20,000. You just have to say no to yourself a lot. Of course, then the other thing that happens is there's a long list of houses in this town that every time I drive by them, I go, ouch, because we should have gotten that house. It works, but there's hardly a neighborhood I can go to where there's not some house where we had a chance to get it for pennies and we thought it was a few too many pennies. Now it's worth a fortune. That's just going to happen. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Well, Pete, it's been interesting to kind of see your story of how you got involved in this world of real estate investing, how you've built your family business there in Indianapolis and grown it kind of organically and over time and, you know, slow and steady and building your portfolio and doing different things and venturing into different things like wholesaling and fix and flipping and buy and hold and all these different things. It's really cool to see and inspiring. Just goes to show that the audience members out there listening, you know, if you're in a market where those numbers don't make sense or, you know, the market's not great for you your buy and hold philosophy or your flipping philosophy or whatever that might be, you can go out somewhere else in the country and probably make that kind of investment start somewhere where those numbers do make sense. Yeah, you can just pick up and move. It's unusual. If we'd been happier where we were, none of this would have happened. We didn't really love the area, so it wasn't too hard. You know, we had friends we left behind, but it wasn't really too hard to leave and we like it here. We're much happier here. Well, awesome, Pete. Well, that's all really great stuff and it's uh, inspiring to see. As we're starting to wrap up here we have a lighting around just a series of questions we ask every one of our guests just fire from the hip are you up for that uh i don't know do i have any choice <laughs> not really to be not honest really. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, the first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what did you do to overcome that? Well, uh, like I just not having any money. Like I said, we got very lucky that I had a lifetime customer who just offered out of the blue to invest with us. And if it hadn't been that, been for that, I think we would have done okay, but we would, it, it really was a huge help. So have friends and develop trust. And like my son, Sam said, when that happened, he said, your whole life is a loan application, pretty much, you know, you work for someone 30 years, they trust you, they'll do something like that. You couldn't necessarily just go to someone out of the phone book and say, hey, why don't you invest a million dollars with us? That was a huge thing for us. Well, Pete, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Yeah, we're all obsessive uh, workaholics. Everybody just likes to work a lot. Uh, the boys both, as soon as they got old enough to have jobs outside the house, they went and got jobs. I mean, Sam got computer jobs. Isaac went and worked in a Dunkin' Donuts just to have a job. <laughs> so, And I've always worked hard. And if I stop working, I really don't know what to do with myself. So it's a happy situation where I like to work all the time, and I get to, and the boys are kind of the same. So that plus, like you said, our skills complement each other. Yeah, sure. Well, they say when you do what you love, you will never work a day in your life, right? That's about right. You know, when I try to take time off, I, I just sit and look around and I read a few books and I'm like this, I can't do this. So. Sure, sure. Well, Pete, do you have an online resource that you find valuable in your day to day? Anything that helps you out in your business or in your personal life or whatever that may be? Well, I guess I should say the many fine podcasts out there, but uh, the boys would be the people to answer that question. The only thing I do online is it's amazing now that you any little construction problem that comes up, you can go find a dozen videos about how to do it. Oh, YouTube is my best friend. <laughs> the problem with that is most of them are giving you pretty bad advice. <laughs> yeah. You watch enough, enough of them and you'll find some old guy who actually knows what he's doing. And that's to develop some stimulation you know, about that. Well, Pete, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? I don't really read a lot of business books. Before I got into this, some guy who did real estate got me to read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which did actually have a little of an effect on me, but I don't really read books like that. I read uh, biographies and history. And the one thing that's relevant to this, I've gotten really interested in the guys who made America, you know, the big business tycoons who... Yeah, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, those guys, right? Read, uh, there's a biography of Rockefeller called Titan. I've read that book several times. And what an amazing guy and what a service he did for this country. In a tiny little way, we have tried, or I've tried to learn from him. You know, that's a guy who, even when he was one of the richest men in the world, he was still hands-on. You know, he'd still go into his plant and like, look at, why do you solder those cans that way? Can we use less solder and save a few pennies? He would do stuff like that. He'd go audit the books and he'd find some guy who owed him 12 cents and he'd go get that 12 cents. I mean, he really was like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that book is called Titan. We'll link that book in the show notes for audience members to find. Great. Pete, last question in the lightning round. If you're to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell yourself? Well, I don't think I would listen to anything I said, for one thing. <laughs> the other thing is I'm pretty happy where I am, so I wouldn't want to go back and change the past too much. But I'll tell you, when I was 20, I was living in a beautiful little mountain town in North Carolina. I could have bought the town for pennies. And now it's a nice little ski resort vacation area. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wouldn't have had to work for the last 20 years if I'd done that. Don't follow your dream unless it makes sense. Because what I was doing was, you know, following my dream, which didn't make any sense. And because of that, I ignored what was right in front of me. 
you know, I had friends who were buying up houses and fixing them up. Man, that's awesome. I love that. Don't follow your dream unless it makes sense. So yeah, that's great. That's not much of a bumper sticker, I guess. Kind of a downer bumper sticker, but I had friends who were doing that. And if I had done what they were doing, would have had a lot better start. Yeah, sure. But like I said, we're doing fine and I'm really happy with it. So That's what it's all about. Well, Pete, hey, it's been a lot of fun having you on the show. Before we wrap up, tell listeners where they can find you at. Okay. We're in Indianapolis. We wholesale, we buy and hold, we buy and flip. You can Google Parrot or you can go to our website, parrothomebuyers.com, or you can call us on the phone, 317-204-2900. And I assume you'll put the stuff in the link anyway. Yes, absolutely. Awesome, Pete. Well, we'll link that stuff in the show notes. Before we wrap up for the day here, is there any parting piece of advice you'd like to leave with the audience members? Maybe something I didn't ask you that I should have. I think you already got the best of me. The thing about uh, being hands-on, the thing about, uh, yeah, well, that would be it. Get out from behind the computer and drive around, see the areas and talk to the neighbors and go in the diner and meet the old folks and just find out what's really going on in, in your city. You can sit on the computer and look at comps and that's great. And someone has to do that. I'm just glad I'm not the guy who has to. My thing is to get out and walk around and meet people and see neighborhoods and see what's really happening and find stuff like that. Sure. Well, Pete, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a lot of fun talking with you, having you on. Look forward to having you back on sometime in the near future. I would love that, but give me some time so I can learn something different to have something else intelligent to say. I really enjoyed this. You're very good at what you do. Thank you very much, Pete. Well, hey, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Let's connect sometime in the future. Okay. Thanks for having me on, Jacob. Thanks so much, Pete. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right. That wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Pete Barrow. Hey, I hope you're getting value from this podcast. If you like what you heard, please go over and leave a rating and review on whichever platform you're listening on. It would mean so much to the show. As always, if you want to know more about any of the resources we mentioned in the show today, you can find those in the show notes by tapping on your phone or going to www.jacobairs.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.